Hello and welcome to the Philanthropy Australia podcast. Dozens of rural and regional communities across Australia have done it harder than usual during the past two years. Critical to how those communities navigate the challenges, economic, climate or pandemic, is often their local not-for-profits who provide the glue and often the inspiration to ensure those communities cope and ultimately thrive. But coping and surviving often comes at a cost. So how do you support local not-for-profits to become sustainable and enable them to become more robust and durable? The answer may be in a program rolled out by the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal in partnership with the Vincent Fairfax Family Foundation. It's called Investing in Rural Community Futures. And on this Philanthropy Australia podcast, we talk to those involved and get a taste of just what a difference this program can make on the ground now and into the future by harnessing local knowledge with funding to deliver outcomes that work across the community. Juni is in the heart of the Riverina, a town with an old-style elegance captured in the verandas encircling some of its heritage buildings and homes and the wide streets. It was once a premier railway town, but nowadays it has a range of agricultural industries to support it. Nat Phillips and her husband Michael run one of the local motels and restaurants. Nat's involved with seven separate committees, including the local version of the Chamber of Commerce. She's got a fair idea what the landscape looked like before the program arrived in June. Before FRR got involved with June as a community as a whole, we were very dysfunctional. There was little communication amongst us all. As an example, there were six of us applying for a shed and trying to find land to put a shed on. <laughs> so, you know, to bring those resources together and work as one has been a huge outcome to start with. Juni was one of the first three towns in New South Wales to be selected to be part of investing in Rural Community Futures Program. Ali Mudford, the People Portfolio Lead at FRRR, explains the thinking behind the program. The Investing in Rural Community Futures program was really born, I guess, out of 2017, um, FRRR did a impact report um, and really looked at where we were getting applications from and what for and capability building, capacity building work was a really large focus of organisations. And I guess we didn't have a lot of donors that were matching, I guess, that expectation from the community. From that deep dive, the Vincent Fairfax Family Foundation came on board and a $5 million partnership was started between FRRR and VFFF and we really looked at building not-for-profit capacity over time. So it was a five-year agreement, uh, it was New South Wales focused and it had not-for-profit capability building work at its core. Now the thing about capacity building in local communities is that one town's priority is not the same as its neighbours. And it also means looking beyond the quick fix of a grant that solves one problem but doesn't address long-term issues. Instead of asking for kitchens and roofs and events, organisations are really looking at taking what is unburdening them, I guess, from that operational load. And so that to me is like investing in paid employment, which is hard. Like there's not a lot of funding out there that really backs people in organisations to do this work. The other piece is around, you know, good governance, having the time to do training and development in a not-for-profit space is really difficult. Looking within, like having the time to look within at your strategy and your purpose that in a rural community, that organisation might have been going for, you know, the last 60 years. 
and having that different leadership aspirations and people within that involved in that organisation. Capacity looks like so many different things, I guess, in the sector because I guess in that when we say not-for-profits, we mean things from the ag society in a local community all the way up to aged care facilities, disability services. Like it's so different, I guess, in terms of their purpose and that fabric of what, what's made up in a community. So supporting capacity in those organisations is different for each of those organisations. The plan was to have three New South Wales communities as the original program participants. After a deep look into the FRRR data, a list of 10 communities was drawn up, then reduced to a short list of five before settling on the final three, Junee, Leeton and the Nambucca Valley. The next step was to develop the critical infrastructure to the program model, and that became four pillars. Ali explains the approach. The things that really stood out were investment in people, investment in systems and structures to support those organisations, Investment in strategy and investment in efficiency, so collaboration. That really has held true throughout the program. There were other important considerations. Developing a roadmap, committing time to ensure the changes were bedded down, as well as identifying local liaison. The program in each of the three communities was for the long haul, five years. There was also an evaluation framework developed to enable reflection and to capture those localised solutions. That framework also measures impact and the change in effect on each not-for-profit's capacity and sustainability. But it does need someone on the ground, a local facilitator, as the point person, and that's where Nat comes in. And engaging with that critical local input starts early. Nancy Spazzato, IRCF Program Manager for Juni, Leeton and Nambaka Valley, explains just how important that community dialogue has been in identifying local priorities to build the roadmap of aspirations. We ask the community how they want the program to respond to them regarding their, and it's through that process that we bring to the service the organisational capacity needs. There was no one template that could be picked up and dropped in from one town to another. There was also the need for community organisations to shift their thinking to get the most out of the new approach. These organisations serve their community. And that is always front of mind, particularly when they are at limited capacity. They'll put their energy out before putting it in. But if they are not sustainable, they can no longer serve their community. So it's a real mindset shift to bring their focus in. You need to, you know, put your oxygen mask on so that you can actually serve your community. That oxygen mask for local organisations can be the critical requirements, such as governance. So developing knowledge and skills around that becomes vital. As Nat says, I don't think anyone understood exactly what their responsibilities were or are as an executive position. And I think they're still stumbling through a lot of that. And we've got some good future training programs coming forward, which is fantastic. So if governance is one of those challenges, what are the others? Well, it's about finding more efficient ways to collaborate with other organisations to avoid duplications especially when it comes to grant applications, improving communications between organisations, developing digital hubs to improve technology access and literacy, and finding ways to support volunteer engagement and retention. Remember Nat mentioning that shed in Junee? Well, as a result of this shift in thinking, there's been a valuable, practical outcome. So we've all sort of come together and applied for one grant 
for a shed to be built at the back of the ex-services club that can have three trailers stored in it and then there's four compartments in that shed. So that grants in at the moment and that'll be accessible by six different groups. Because it's at the club, they can access the keys to open the sheds through the club's uh, reception area seven days a week. So it takes the onerous off a committee person to actively be responsible for all of that. So I think it's a good outcome. But while each community is different, so too are the responses from organisations within those communities. Some are enthused by the new landscape, others not so sure of their place. Nat sees how it plays out. There are some groups in June that have embraced it with open hands completely. The Roundhouse Museum, they've attended every training, they've dipped into every grant they can possibly do, but they really have embraced every bit of information that FRR have given them and the courses that we've been able to share with them. There are some that want the change to happen very quickly, but it won't. There are some that are still trying to understand that it's not infrastructure-based. But yeah, so I think, are they embracing it? Yes, they are. Some just want it faster than others. But it it will get there, and COVID has slowed a lot of that up. What Nat's identified is something deeply linked to the program's central focus on capacity building. It can be confronting for local organisations to look inward, to identify what they need to fix, and then plot their way out of that predicament. And that's where FRRR can place itself, as the partner supporting those organisations along the path towards a more sustainable future. Ali provides this perspective. The types of capacity building work we're talking about is really about unpacking those vulnerabilities in that organisation and how we can support them. And so that takes time and it takes trust and it takes um, real courage to kind of keep looking at that. And we say COVID disruption, but when you have started that conversation, which is what we did in 2019, and then kind of everything changed in terms of delivery, in terms of purpose, in terms of people's connections, it's really had people reevaluating what their organisation does anyway and how they're going to do that into the future. So where we started in 2019, and as Nancy said, we're right in the peak of delivery now, is really different to where we started. And you think of all those grants that were made in 2019 right across the nation and how they actually ended up being spent because I think it would be really interesting to see what that change in practice looked like for rural communities. The evidence halfway through the program is that some attitudes have changed and according to Nat, some of the organisations in Junee have started to see what their future could look like. I think our biggest change that I've seen is the committees wanting to remain or become sustainable within them their own not-for-profit organisation. And I don't think they actually even really thought about that before FRRR. The long-term nature of the program means it's not shackled to any short-term funding fixes or election cycles. That means the dynamic is different too, as Ali outlines. I think that this place-based, localised, working with the community on big, chunky capacity builder problem is different. Everyday grant making, you do a bit of stakeholder engagement, write some guidelines, put it out to the world, and then you get it back, you assess it, only a certain portion of them win. And this is what Nancy spoke to in terms of trying to say, there is a million dollars here for your community. What is the best way we can support you and also leverage this funding over the next five years? Like that's been the real conversation. 
With the support of the Snow Foundation and Bendigo Bank, the program's now been extended to New South Wales' south coast to cover Ulladulla, Batemans Bay, Nowra and Bay and Basin. A new iteration of the program doesn't mean leaving the other ones behind. As Nancy explains it, the relationships FRRR established in the first program will keep it coming back. Because I actually think the communities are really asking for us to continue to walk alongside. What that looks like will shift after five years, but I believe we will still be there in some capacity, even if it is in the fact that we have such significant relationships that we will naturally go back anyway in terms of how we are connected to place at FRRR and organisations and what we've noticed and seen. I just think that's just an organic reality of where we go next. A key consideration in such challenging times is that the program itself doesn't become a burden on any organisation that's taking part. As Nancy says, no one wants to deplete an organisation, and the evidence is to the contrary, as Nat explains. I think the unity between all the not-for-profits, the directory, honestly, there's a lot of things that are very valuable from the program. I don't think I'd really like to pinpoint one thing other than maybe the unity between all the groups, and they're all talking and working on the same goal together rather than all separate goals. She can see how the program has helped build confidence, skills and knowledge among the organisations in Junee. There are signs of a transformation. I guess for Junee, and I'm not going to speak for all of us, but a majority feel like the FRRR group has been like mum and dad holding our hands to get back on track again. And that support has actually made a nice calming transition to do that. And we've only got two and a half years left. And I think that support would be really warranted and needed for longer just to keep them on track. They will only just be getting to their goals. And if anything slips or their committees change, then they've got this little sliding scale again. And I think there's some that are a little bit nervous about it. I know I am as junior business and trades because we as a committee is even struggling to hold it together still at the moment, but it's getting there. This has been the Philanthropy Australia podcast. I'm Nick Richardson, and thanks for listening.